0: This evening go to Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah chapter number 2. A few weeks ago, just in, in praying about what to spend a little bit of time on with you, I felt like going into one of these Old Testament prophets and really looking at what could be said to us for the times in which we live And to really allow God to speak to to our hearts. So in Isaiah chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading with verse 1. And I'll just read the first three verses. And then we'll just slowly look at what the chapter says. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains. And shall be exalted above the hills. And all nations shall flow into it. And many people shall go and say, come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So the teaching is just entitled exalted above the hills. We want to look at how God brings promotion, but at the same time, he, he, he knows how to humble us. We've told you before that it's better to humble yourself in the eyes of God rather than being humiliated later. But let's have a word of prayer. Father, as we take the time to look into the scriptures, speak to all of our hearts. We are ever so grateful and mindful of the fact that you have blessed us And God, you've allowed each one of us one more opportunity to gather with the saints of God. So speak to our hearts clearly in Jesus name. And everyone said, amen. Isaiah lived eight centuries or so before Jesus was born. You can see in chapter one, verse one, that he prophesied through the reign of a number of different kings. So we told you that his ministry lasted at least some five decades. Now, it was much probably much longer than that, but he had some contemporaries that prophesied with him. Amos was one of them. Micah was another one. And then also Hosea. And all of them were prophesying under some of the same kings. And there are times when some of these prophets are saying the same thing, even though they're all in somewhat different locations. Because Micah in the first three or four verses here has the same language in his book in chapter four. And then when we look into the reign of Hosea, you can see that some of the conditions that he prophesies about are the same. The reason I emphasize these things in the beginning is to show you that God sometimes have has a number of voices saying the same thing under the reign of. Or the governance of one particular person. And though all of them may be in the same region or district. God knows how by his Holy Spirit. To still bring a singular voice out of them. And in verse 1 here. You can see where it says the word that he saw. So we're talking about a prophecy. A prophecy being for Isaiah. An oral word that came to him. Spoken to his heart by the Holy Spirit. Which he then penned or inscribed for later generations to be able to read. And when God does some things, he does do it in a vision sometimes so that the prophet can see what it is that has taken place. What is a prophet? Of course, it's someone who may make predictions and certainly one who's going to declare the mind and the will of God to the people that he or she is speaking to. And that that prophet will function under inspiration and speak God's word. And remember, God sometimes calls prophets to speak to people who aren't going to listen to them. Now, How would you like that calling? He told Jeremiah, he said, look, have I not called you to a people that are stiff necked and they won't listen to you and they're hard hearted? And yet the Lord sent Jeremiah to the nation of Israel anyway. I don't know how anybody would do that. The Lord said, I'm going to call you. You're going to go to Hudeville, Iowa. And I'm telling you before you get there that no one is going to listen to you. There won't be anyone that's going to respond to your message. But I want you to go and set up camp there And I want you to preach them until I tell you that you can leave. And then a man or woman ends up dying there. Now, somebody else might come along and say, well, it just seems to me that if it was the will of God for them to be there, the people would have responded to what they said. But listen, uh, Noah preached in his generation and the only ones he saved were in his family. You could also say he probably was the most successful preacher to ever live because everybody he didn't save was damned. They were lost because they refused to hear what that man of God had to say, but he did save his whole family. And that's a beautiful thing in the sense that of his kids and his uh, daughter-in-laws. So looking at verse two, because we're dealing with Judah, the region and Jerusalem, the city. Isaiah looking into the last days, just as Micah did, he said it'll come to pass in the last days. Now, that phrase last days is something that's used by plenty of people in the Old Testament and plenty of people in the New Testament. In fact, when we try to figure out for us when the last days did begin, we know they began with the coming of Jesus Christ because Hebrews 1 tells us that. And in Peter, he uses that phrase. And when Paul talks about the end of the age, he's using a phrase similar to that to let us know there is a period of time in which prophecies are going to be fulfilled and specific things are going to happen. So verse two, he talks about the mountain of the Lord's house. Jerusalem is a city that has a large mountain where the temple of the Lord is built. And from most places in that uh, area, you certainly can see the house of the Lord up on top. And I think when David put the tabernacle up there and Solomon established the temple up there, it was so beautiful that people couldn't wait to flow into and ascend the the, uh, hill. In fact, some of the Psalms that David wrote if you ever read the superscription, that's over some of the Psalms. Now, all the ancient Hebrew manuscripts have them also. So those those little titles and stuff that you see above those Psalms, those are just as inspired as the words that you find in the Psalm. Well, some of those are called a song of ascent. That is to say that there's a batch of those Psalms that were to be sung as they walked up the hill, going to the temple. See, so like, you know, a, a good call to worship for many churches. And it's been a lot of years since I've done it. But a lot of times I used to open a Sunday morning service with uh, that, that old song that said, um, I was glad when they said unto me, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house <laughs> of the Lord. So these are these gathering songs. Let people know it's time to worship. And these songs of ascent, the children of Israel would sing as they were going up to the Lord's house because they were preparing themselves for worship and because the top of that mountain is for worship. This is why it says in verse two, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains. All across Israel, you have hills and mountains, but there are no mountains as important as the mountain, mountain of the Lord where the house of the Lord is. If you ever took a trip to Amman, Jordan, you'd see that that whole city is built on seven hills. I used to live on top of the mountain called Jabal Ashrafia, Mount Ashrafia, the mountain that was somewhat exalted. I lived there for about a year and a half up there, and any time I wanted to go somewhere, I had to walk all the way down that hill, catch a little mini bus to go to where I needed to go. Then when I got finished doing what I was doing, came back and had to walk up that hill. And I'm telling you, I got tired of walking that hill. I could never understand why it is that when I first moved there, I was in my 20s, why everybody going up the hill were moving so slow. I said, you'll never get home walking that slow. But then after I stayed on that hill long enough, going down to the store to pick up some milk and then turn around, having to go right back up and then getting up there. And then they said, we forgot this. Can you go back down? Then I realized why everybody was dragging because you get tired of going up the hill. Well, if 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 we acknowledge that the house of God was the place of worship, then you can see why God would take this one place and exalt it above all other mountains and hills because it was important to God. And this tells you that God did not accept any other hilltop as a sacred place of worship. And I'm, I'm, I want to bring that out because there were a lot of different religions that were in ancient Israel in Isaiah's day. People worshipped Baal. People worshipped Ashtaroth. There were surrounding cultures, that had their own gods, but you know as well as I do, God did not accept or recognize any other faith other than the faith that came with those that had a covenant with him. And we as Christians are the same way. We can look around and see that there are a lot of religions in the world, but there's only one true faith. And Jesus said, anybody that comes through the Father, they have to come through who? Through him. And he said, you can't get to the Father except you come by me. And in verse two, when it says it'll be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow into it. So Isaiah was able to see a day and a time in which people who were of other cultures were themselves going to flow to this hilltop into this mountain. And the 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 teaching of the word of God was so important that people from everywhere would come. This wouldn't this would be like a, a, a mini revival. We're talking about this would be the only true place to come and find God. Now, people will go anywhere if they're looking for God. They'll travel long distance. Um, I'm hearing repeatedly. Now that down in Kentucky at Asbury college, there's a revival going on. And we had some people from one of the other churches that wanted to go down there. And so you got all these people coming out there talking about people flying there and going back and forth. Well, that happens every time people believe there's some kind of move that is taking place. But imagine what this is going to be like if folks from all 200 nations are trying to make their way to the hill of God, What is the presence of God gonna be like on that hilltop? In Moses' time, the cloud of God descended, the glory of God was so strong that the scripture says people could not stand in his presence. And if God's glory descends in a powerful way, imagine the people that'll be saved, the people that will be healed, can you can you even envision a, a period of time like that? where you don't have any problems at all because of God's presence. And so verse three, there's a whole lot of people that's going to tell everybody else. Come, let's go to the mountain of the Lord. It's like inviting people to church. So everybody's going to become a witness or many people are going to become a witness. And all of us should become a witness. Now, they're telling them to come to the mountain of the Lord because they believe in God and they believe there's a presence of God there. If the presence of God was not there, do you think they'd be inviting people to come? Probably not. No. If, if, if you're ever talking with someone and you say and you say something like this. <clears throat> well, where, where do you fellowship? And, and then they, they kind of drop their head. And then they can start mumbling a little bit as though they don't really like where they go. Do you really think they're going to try to invite you to come where they attend? No. But if if we can be like them and be excited about what God is doing in our hearts, in our midst, in our lives, then, of course, we can witness and tell other people, look, you need to come and fellowship with us. Come visit. Come see what God is saying and doing amongst amongst us. That's so what God wants. So this wasn't a matter of religion, because you could find religion anywhere. In Jesus' day, people could have went to the synagogue, but this was long before Jesus' day. But I love the fact that he says, "Come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob. The history of Israel is not forgotten. The covenant God made with Jacob stands sure." And the promises God made in the past to their ancestors are continuing generation to generation. And whatever promises God has made to you, believe that those promises are going to come to pass. If he promised you, he'll save your kids, your grandkids, your family members. I don't care how bad it looks like. And people worshiping Baal and other things in your house or in your family. Hold to the fact that the scripture said, He's going to honor his covenant. Believe what the words says. Stand on the word. Here is what they did. We're going to the house of the God of Jacob. If he's Jacob's God, he's our God because we're descendants of Jacob. Now, doesn't the Bible teach that we're descendants of Abraham? Yeah. So we're people of faith. We're children of faith. If Abraham was the patriarch of faith and we're the descendants of faith, we should have confidence and trust in God. That's different than people who don't have a relationship with God. And our trust and confidence is based on the knowledge of God. In fact, I don't think anybody in here can have a faith that extends beyond our knowledge of God. Because what you know about God is going to be the determining factor uh, regarding how broad your faith can be. So your foundation has to be strong in the word of God. If these people knew who Jacob was, then they could stand on the word and trust. But imagine somebody saying, let's go up to the house of the God of Jacob and you don't know who Jacob is. What kind of faith are you going to (laughs) have about going to the house of God if you don't know who Jacob is? If somebody said, look, we're we're headed to church, we're going to worship Jesus Christ. And then you ask, well, who is he? Well, what's the point of going to worship? You can't worship. You can't exhibit any kind of faith. So two things are going to happen when we get up there. He says in verse 3, he'll teach us his ways, and we'll walk in his paths. So God has characteristics and manners and customs that differ from ours. And if they need to be taught to us, that means they don't come naturally to us. You understand that? We we have to be taught some things. When a, when a baby comes into this world... And, and, and finally puts puts his or her feet on planet earth that that baby has to learn certain things so what what does the baby have to learn eventually going to have to learn to walk and then when the baby learns to walk uh, you, you're going to have to teach the baby who to go to and who not to go to don't Don't parents teach kids sometimes don't talk to who strangers see not that that those are the ways of mom and dad don't talk to don't talk to strangers and if you leave the house. And uh like my mom and them would do sometime and and I was there in the house, they'd lock up everything before they left, and then they'd say, Don't answer the telephone. If if we call, you'll know it's us, we'll call. It'll rain once, then we'll hang up, then we'll call back. You pick up the phone. Anybody comes to the door, you don't even go near the door. That's what they say when I was just a little guy. And my older brothers may have been gone or something like that. Well, they they're teaching me their customs and their habits. So the habits in your life are transmitted to the next generation. And when we become a Christian, we don't just automatically know everything about God. You have to learn about the gifts of the spirit. You have to learn about the fruit of the spirit that's going to be manifested in your life. You have to learn what it means to trust God, how to trust God, how to walk in love because everybody isn't loving just because they become a Christian. Now, I realize the love of God is shed abroad in our heart by the Holy Spirit. That's Romans five and five. However, there's also in all of us something called a sin nature. Or Paul uses this language, the law of sin. So whatever it is that makes it possible for you to be tempted to do evil, that's in you and that's in me. And as long as that's there, the possibility exists for that flesh, the old nature, the old man before you became a Christian, for that old man to come back to life. And when he manifests himself, he'll keep God's love from being exhibited in your Christian life. So we have to learn how to put the old man to death, to mortify the members of the flesh, to keep our speech in such a way that it's used for edification People just don't know that overnight. And this is why we have so many Christians today who, even though they say they love the Lord, they still have vulgar speech. See, they they have an untamed tongue, which quite naturally the old man can't tame. However, that new nature, that new creature that's born of God, he can tame it. The Holy Ghost of God can help you. With your speech, the person who's got a a anger problem, see, just instantly angry, upset, always offended. you got to walk on eggshells around her just to keep her from getting upset. That old nature can be tempered. It just takes God and we have to learn the ways of God. So this is why we come to the house of God, because in the house of God is where the presence of God is, where the teaching of God is. And when we learn the teaching of God, we learn his ways. What does it mean when it says God is a forgiving God? Then as Christians, we have to learn how to forgive. So Jesus, when talking with one of his disciples, here's what one of the disciples asked him, because he wasn't having the best day. And, and, and he, he likely, uh, I don't know, he, he likely was having to deal with, with, with some of the folks that, that are here like in Hebron. You know? so, so he goes to, to Jesus and he asks this question, Lord, if my brother sins against me how often how many times do I have to forgive him? And so of course he he he's hoping that the Lord would be generous because you know you know Peter he said hey what about seven times? Because I feel like if I forgive somebody seven times I'm doing pretty good and Jesus was thinking well I mean seven times may be good for you Peter but that doesn't meet the standard of the kingdom of God. So we're just going to go with 70 times 7. So that puts us right at about 490 times. Now, we don't know if it's 490 times in a month, 490 times in a year, 490 times in a day. I receive that, and I just know that means no matter what I do, how many times I do it, Lynette has to forgive me. She's got to forgive me. And and you you may not want to forgive me or love me, but you have to if you want to go to heaven. Mm hmm. But scripture says it this way. If you stand and pray and won't forgive, who is it that won't forgive you? Our heavenly father. So if if he's not going to listen. Then we're in trouble. And I'm telling you right now, everybody's in trouble if God's not going to forgive us. Yeah, we're in trouble. So we have to learn his ways. We learn them in the house of God. And then it says we will walk in his paths. So all of us have individual paths. And if I were to ask everybody in here, kind of tell me your story as far as uh, where you were born and raised and how you got to that chair you're sitting in right now, then everybody's path, I guarantee, has been different. Some of you had different paths growing up. Jennifer, Mennonite path. Phyllis, Mennonite path. See, a number of people just on different paths When they came into this world, but yet somehow or another, we all then begin to discover that God has a path that is, you know, strictly for us because John the Baptist, he started off as a good Jewish boy, the son of a priest. He knew what it was to go to the synagogue, but yet when he was called by God to hang out in the desert for a little while, he was being prepared for ministry. Then he comes out of the desert and then he starts preaching the kingdom of God. Disciples came to him and the people who were disciples of him. You know, they could have been called the Baptists. Yeah, could have been called the Baptist. And then one day his cousin comes along and, and John said, <laughs> behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And then he says, I've got to get out of here and decrease so that this guy can increase. And then he starts telling people, you go and you follow Jesus. And then people start going to ask Jesus, can we spend the day with you? And then they did. And then they went and told their Relatives, And I'm sure Peter was wondering when Andrew and them came and got him. Well, what what group are you following this month? We were all raised Jews and you were running around with this John the Baptist stuff. So now you're telling me that this man, Jesus, is the Messiah. And so you want to be part uh, part of that. So notice the differences in everybody's paths, though, because people came different ways, sometimes through different groups in order to get to a place where they were following Christ in a deeper way. You could have been Church of Christ in your background, could have been AG in your background, could have been Pentecostal Church of God, could have been Nazarene in your background, could have been of no religious background. But when you started walking with God, one of the things you noticed was that as you grew in grace and in knowledge, sometimes you outgrew the people you formerly were walking with. Because you just began to believe and see things that they didn't believe and see. And that kind of growth is important. You can put on a six-year-old a hat, and he'll be quite happy to put that hat on. But then when he's a teenager, you try to put that same hat on him, it just doesn't fit. And as a Christian, as we're growing in God, sometimes our spiritual coverings have to be enlarged because of how we're growing. This is what happened. This is how we learned to walk in the path that God had for us. I've got a boatload of people down in in Hayes that formerly were Catholic, but aren't so now, but also have a, a whole bunch of them that were formerly of an Episcopal background, but aren't anymore. You see, it just just all depends on how that path is leading them. All I know is all of us are trying to get to the top of the hill where the mountain of the Lord is, where the presence is, where his place is exalted above everything else. And the closer we press into him, the more of him we receive. And then that's all we want. He creates a greater appetite on the inside of us. Okay, let's move on. So at the end of verse three, then it says we'll walk in his path for out of Zion shall go forth the law. What is a law? It's a precept or a statute. Sometimes you will hear people say things like this. You, you can't curb bad behavior with legislation. Oh, yes, you can. Oh, yes, you can. It just all depends on what kind of penalty and punishment you have attached to the law. So when I lived in Saudi Arabia, some uh, young men decided to go out and thieve and steal cars. And when they caught up with these young men who were teenagers, it so shamed their tribe that in the capital city of Riyadh, the law which said you know, you're not supposed to do that was then applied to them. You know what they did to all them, them young boys, they beheaded them. And you know, they did with their heads. They put the heads on, on the posts of the gates of the city. So everybody driving in and everybody driving out saw the faces of the people that shamed the tribe and embarrassed all the families. Well, Saudi Arabia has all kinds of laws that are crazy. Years ago, when I went to Yemen, I've told you, I think about this. I went down into the old city one time. This might have been, this would have been in 91. I went into the old city walking around and was looking at these old shops because they say Sana'a is one of the oldest cities on planet Earth. I don't know. That's just what they, what they say. But I'm walking around and I see all of these hands that are hanging from a rope and dangling in from front of different shops and so I asked the driver because I was working for the embassy then, when I said well why in the world do these shopkeepers have these little little fake hands or whatever just hanging from in their shop are these like taluses or charms or something to keep bad elements away they said oh no these are folks who got caught stealing and when the law caught up with them and they were judged and they were sentenced the hand was taken off. So they put the hand out in front of the store. Now I guarantee you this, there are a whole lot of people, if they thought about Steve it still and they saw that hand and they thought, well, maybe I'll not do that. Yeah, I'll not do that. And I guarantee you, there are plenty of people in this land right here who have avoided doing certain things, even in their crimes, because they thought it would be the death penalty. Or they thought a the possibility they'd be in jail without parole. And this is why you see some thieves, they try to do these white collar crimes, but they'll testify and they'll say, look, we don't do murder. We don't take anybody's life because they know what that means. You see, well, understand that a law can in some shape, form or fashion curb behavior. If it wasn't true, you would not have a Bible. God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. They were formerly slaves. One of the first things he did was try to work on forming them to be a chosen generation, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. How does he do that? He gives them laws and precepts that governs their behavior. And then he says this to them: you are not to be like the Egyptians from whom I've redeemed you. You are not to serve their God. These are laws, folks. These are not suggestions. These are laws. He says, you will not have any other gods before me. Don't make any images. Don't bow down on your knees. These are not suggestions. He says, do not take my name in vain. Don't murder anybody. Don't commit adultery. Don't bear false witness, which means don't lie. These are not suggestions. These are laws. And when you establish my tabernacle, here is exactly how you're to put together the house This is how you're supposed to erect it. This is how you're supposed to tear it down and carry it out. And this is how you're supposed to handle all the sacrifices. These were laws. So when you come into the New Testament, then Jesus, because he climbed up on the cross and he died. Then we automatically think since he bore our sins, our sorrows, our infirmities, that all of a sudden the law now is displaced. Well, in some fashion it is because all the liturgical stuff, we don't have to dress like that. We don't have to go to Israel three times a year as heads of our families. Ladies don't have to go through some of the things that are mentioned in there. We don't take rebellious teenagers outside the city and have a rock party and stone them because of their bad behavior. That that stuff is done away with the law. However, every one of the Ten Commandments you can still find in Paul and Peter's epistles. Every one of them. There's not a one you can't find. Every one of them. The last verse, verse of 1 John 5 says, little children, stay away from idols. I mean, stay away from God. Stay away from other gods. Paul says, provide things honest in the sight of all men. Don't lie one to another. Don't bear false witness. Paul makes it very plain. We're not supposed to engage in fornication outside of relationships. And if we do, like they did in 1 Corinthians, looking at chapters 5, 6, and so on, you can see that's adultery. He wasn't happy about that. No, the same way they were redeemed, and God took His law to change their minds, to change their behavior. We became Christians, and Paul said to us as newborn believers, since old things are passed away and all things have become brand new, he says, be renewed in the spirit of your what mind. See, so God God starts changing our behavior by what it says in the new testament so the epistles even though they aren't what we call the old testament law these still are precepts that god wants us to live by during this time of grace when the scripture says pray without ceasing god expects us to pray when the scripture says husbands love your wives as christ loved the church that's not just you know good advice for living or good happy suggestion that's A command he expects us to to carry out. And if if we understand that, then we'll see that behavior can be affected by the law of God. Yeah. So looking at something else here. Out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So Jerusalem became a place that was influential because of the presence of God and because of the presence of God, the word of the Lord <clears throat> issued from there. And in Isaiah's day, as we have already seen from chapter one, everyone didn't want to hear the word of God. So if, if God's house fell into, how do we want to say it? If, if the value of God's house diminished, even in Isaiah's day, are you really surprised that there are a lot of people that don't care anything about the church today? Say, why is the church so important? Because the church contains the presence of God and it is from the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ that the word of the Lord goes forth. And this is why people do not want Christians to be vocal about what they believe. There are some people on this planet, if they could, they'd put a muzzle on the mouth of every Christian mom. So that she can't open up her mouth and say anything about the Bible. Yeah. And, and if they had their way, they wouldn't let a preacher get on television and talk about God unless that preacher was like the Lutheran preachers in Germany. And they just got up there and said everything that was in accordance with what the government wanted them to say. See. Because the, the word of God is so powerful That it'll change lives. When we look into this book and it tells us, as Jesus said in Matthew 19, have you not read that he that made them, talking about God, in the beginning, talking about God, said that he made them male and female, talking about God. That's two genders. People do not want the church to have a voice to say these things because they run contrary to the Baalism that's in the world today that's calling people out. And we have plenty of prophets of Baal today calling people away from the true worship of God. You see them on television. You see them on news programs. You see them on sitcoms. You'll see them in the movies. Anything to denigrate the house of God and the word of God that comes from that house. But this is where, where we come in. We we have to do what we can to stand steadfast. So verse four, he shall judge among the nations. You better believe it. God's watching and shall rebuke many people. You mean to tell me God would do that? You know what a rebuke is? A rebuke is an admonishment. A rebuke is a statement made towards someone because their behavior is contrary to how it should be. That's a rebuke. Now Paul says that if you have someone causing trouble, and depending on what kind of trouble that is, he said uh, some you should rebuke before all that their sins won't go beforehand. What, What does that mean? That means that let's let's say let's take John and Jennifer as an example, because they, they got the, the Brueggemann tribe. See, so let, let, let's say that the older ones, when they were little, did something they should not have been doing. You know, John and Jen could have handled that in front of all of the kids if they ever did. And they probably did a few times. They handled it in front of everybody. And then the rest of the kids probably think we probably better not do that. Well, we'll get handled the same way. See, so so that's open rebuke that Paul was talking about. and And when we think about it, some people would never even believe that God would rebuke anybody because they wouldn't believe that God is displeased with any behavior. Some say that God is only a God of love. He does not deal out any kind of wrath he's not a jealous god he won't exhibit any kind of displeasure but you know as well as i do there are a whole lot of things in the bible that didn't please god and he rebuked the children of israel and this is what the prophets were about isaiah comes along and says look turn from your sins to rebuke because he wouldn't be saying turn if they weren't already ensnared and going in the wrong direction So Isaiah comes along. He says, look, you folks are acting like Sodom and Gomorrah and God's going to deal with you if you don't change. What is he doing? He's rebuking them because God is saying what you're doing is is not right. And this is what verse four is making very clear. There are many people in the last days that God will have to rebuke. Yep. But there will be a turn because he says here in this verse, people are going to take their swords and they're going to turn them into agricultural tools. And where everybody was trying to go to war, people are not going to be working on sowing seed and reaping harvest. Yeah. Now, it's likely we're in the millennium here talking about this, but I'm working on the principles of it. God can turn a person's heart and mind and life so that it affects their actions. That's what I'm trying to say. So verse four again, and their spears into pruning hooks, nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. Wouldn't it be nice to not have to go to battle, not have to have friends who have children that have gone to war? Yeah. I mean, all of us, we have. Either known someone or a descendant of someone who knows someone that years ago had to fight in the Civil War. And all of us, if we can look back in our lineage, you'll find there's somebody in your heritage or connected with your family that fought in World War I, World War II, Korean War, Vietnam War. Yeah, moving forward, Persian go for it. not to mention the small little skirmishes and all these other places. It'll be nice to be in a world where you don't have to worry about any of that. You are the nations fighting against nations where Ukraine's not having to deal with Russia and where you won't have these tribal problems in Africa and other places. But as long as there's sin in the world and there's pride in the world and some won't humble themselves in the face of other people, you're going to have war and competition, and strife, and discord. And that last sentence in verse four, they won't learn war anymore. I I don't know that on planet Earth there's any nation that has war colleges as good and as great as ours. You can go to college in America and learn how to fight battles and how to do wars. Them, Them folks at the Pentagon, some of these people are specialists, Whether someone's going to the Army War College, Naval War College, our different armed forces have their own particular war college except the Marine Corps. But even Marine Corps have have their own schools for teaching people about war. What are they teaching? The history of warfare. They're teaching about the personalities that were involved with the warfare. They're showing how people lost battles, how they won battles. And if you think that's not an important thing to know, just study the life of Alexander the Great. That man conquered most of the known world of his day because he was a master tactician when it came to warfare. And he taught his men not to be afraid. They trained their horses not to be afraid to go into battle, even with people that had spears. So God says, it's coming to time. We're not going to have to worry about that. But he says, for the house of Jacob, come, let's walk in the light of the Lord. That's what we should do. It's impossible to walk outside the light and revelation that you possess of God. You cannot do it. Whatever you know about God, whatever knowledge you have, that is light. You lose that light, you're in the darkness. And darkness, of course, in the scripture is a symbol of ignorance, That's what it is. A symbol of ignorance. Turn the light on. You can live in accordance with with the word of God. So I take a a little verse like that when it says walk in the light of the Lord. That means live according to what you know. Yeah. Live according to what you know. This prophecy here from Isaiah, even though we're reading it now, some twenty eight hundred years later. This is the light of God's revelation. And when you take the time to live your life in accordance with this, you're walking in the light of God. Yeah. But if if you go to sleep tonight and you have a dream or a vision, and in that dream or vision, God talks to you. He speaks to you through images or whatever. And he he gives you a command about what he wants you to do, or he rebukes you about what you're doing. Then you got a choice now. Do I walk in the light of that or do I not? See whatever whatever you do, your life is going to be lived according to the light that you choose. You choose to walk in, and of course, some revelation is brighter than other kinds of revelation. There'll never be anything that compared with the word of God. Nothing will never be anything. But I still believe in prophecy. I still believe in tongues and interpretation. But there'll never be anything that is bright and as brilliant as the revelation of the word of God. But I still believe in somebody giving me a word of exhortation out of the scripture. Because that still is a light. So whether I've got a candle, a flashlight or something bright that's on. I just need God to provide some illumination because with illumination, I can walk firmly and put one footprint in front of the other. And that gives me confidence and helps me with my balance and equilibrium. It is hard to move confidently in the dark and you run into that when you run into people and say, well, I just don't know what to believe and I'm not sure what religion is right. You know what they're saying? I can't walk confidently because I have no idea who's the true, who's the true savior and which religion is right. But if you know that the Bible says God wants your child saved from sin, then you can stand on that and believe that God wants your child, your child saved. From sin. If, if you can believe and understand that despite all the physical challenges you have faced in, and are facing in your life right now, that it still is God's will for you to recover, then you can wake up every day confident that God's not your enemy and your foe trying to fight against you, but God has actually got his hands on you, raising you up gives you balance, gives you structure, gives you strength. Even when somebody comes along and says, well, you know, I'm just not sure whether or not uh, God wants you to do this. Who cares? If God calls a man or woman into ministry to do the work of God and somebody else comes along and says, well, I'm not sure you're called, it doesn't really matter whether you believe they're called or not. God's the one working in their heart. And if God is the one calling them, God is the one who's going to reveal himself more and more to them. Very important. So lastly, let me say this. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. It is something God expects the house of Jacob to do together. So when I study the word and I feed on the scriptures, sometimes where I'm grazing, I pull you sheep right on out there in the pasture lands with me and let you graze with me. What I'm studying on, if it's blessing me, I bring it to you and let you feed on it. Also, there are sometimes I'm working on something out of the scriptures and God's just dealing with me, or it may be for someone else or someplace else where I'm going. But 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 all of us have to come along in the revelation of God. Otherwise, you have some people that are very mature, and then you have some people that are very immature, like babes. And we've all met people who've been in Sunday school for 50 years and are still as mean as a junkyard dog because going to church doesn't make a person a Christian and automatic growth doesn't come just from sitting in a church. you got to actually hear the word, believe the word, apply the word. Yeah, it's like one preacher talking about how people be in church all their life and grow old without growing up and he was talking about, look, I don't mind handing You uh, bottle to feed you as you're acting like a baby. But what does bother me is to have to ask you to pull out your false teeth and then I've got to part your whiskers just to get the nipple of the bottle in. See, and and what that preacher is saying is folks have grown old in church and are still like infants. See, God's plan for you and God's plan for me. It's for us to walk in the light of the revelation that we have, but we have to be open to what God is saying to us. Amen. All right. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And we are so grateful for the growth that you provided to all of us because we have all come down different roads and different paths. You have humbled us plenty of times as we have studied Your word continue to help us to exalt your son because we know as we do that promotion doesn't come from the east or west or north or south. It comes from you. We love you and praise you in Jesus mighty name. And everyone said, amen, amen, amen. amen. Question.